I'm guessing that you have found yourself in situations throughout life where you have had the ability or the power to be able to change a situation, but you know that it's actually better if you withhold or if you if you don't do something. And uh, maybe you've seen some kids kind of having a bit of an argument, squabbling over something, and you could step in, but you know that there are times where it's appropriate not to intrude, not to sort it out, because in, in some situations it would be better, loving even, to let them learn how to deal with that conflict. Perhaps in uh, workplaces, our bosses or managers have great power over us, including whether or not we have a job for tomorrow. They have, often have a whole suite of authoritative power at their disposal, yet it's loving, it's good for us, that they apply these powers selectively. And in those bosses that do it well, we find those bosses that we love and appreciate. I hope all of us balk at the idea of the misuse of our abilities and powers to get our own way, to, uh, to ride rudshot over people, to bend the system to their advantage to get what they want when we're on the receiving end of this behavior, we, would, we could rightly call out the injustice. We could righteously be angry over the misuse of power or, 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 or misuse of, of the things at our disposal to, to hurt other people. Yet sometimes it's appropriate to restrain ourselves from crying out with outrage and anger. When we restrain ourselves, when we turn the other cheek and suffer ridicule and punishment unjustly, we're not without honour. I know that's a double negative, but that's how they say it. You're not without honour. In those situations, we could call the one who restrains themselves, despite the fact that they've been wronged, the one who restrains himself, we use the terminology, we say, he's the bigger man or she's the bigger woman. Not, it's, a, it's a way of saying that they're... <laughs> that they have greater respect to be able to withhold themselves. They're showing themselves to be better than the one who is doing them wrong. We understand that the, the one who has power and ability to respond to the injustice shown to them and yet is reserved, even though um, they've been hurt, when they are even kind to the aggressor, they are worthy of respect. There is a special power in being able to withstand the tide of evil and respond with love. Yes, there is definitely a place for correcting injustice, but sometimes it's not our job and sometimes it's not appropriate to take matters into our own hand and respond in kind. Sometimes it's better to be the bigger person. Sometimes it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Today, we continue our look into the criminal trial of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth. We see Jesus, a, a loving and patient king, the one being the bigger man. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. He is God in flesh, and yet he subjects himself to this trial. He goes through the shame, through the torture, through the humiliation, through the rejection all without letting his overwhelming majesty and power and authority come through and destroy all those who stand against him. 
The Apostle John, remember, wrote this book of John so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So this record of events that we've been working our way through, this record that we are going to look at a portion of this morning, it's not just here for historical interest. It is written here so that you may really, truly trust in and put your faith in Jesus and find life in him. Here we see the awesome restraint of the Son of God and in that restraint, perfect submission to the will of the Father. But what he could do in these moments is not the focus here. Instead, the focus is on what he did do and what others did to him. And it all happened so that he could gain salvation for his people. It all happened so that Jesus could remain faithful and loyal to the Father and continue the mission. He did it to gain salvation for those people who were there on those days and who did those horrible things to him. He did it to offer salvation to you. Let's look at four ways that Jesus is treated or or four ways that Jesus is presented in this passage. The first way that Jesus is presented is as the flogged king. You remember that Jesus has been arrested Uh, He was shuffled off in the middle of the night to a priest's house where they had a bit of a a sham trial. And then after that, he was shipped off to another priest's house. But then, kind of in early hours of the morning, he was taken and given to Pilate, handed over to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor. Remember, uh, Judea at this time is under the thumb of the Romans. The Roman Empire spread across the Mediterranean and uh, Judea is one of those places where the, pe- the local people have an occupying force over, the, over them, the Roman. So, Pilate is the delegated governor. He's out there. He doesn't come from that area, but he's been sent out kind of on behalf of Caesar, on behalf of Rome, and he is governing in that area. In the sense, like even our governor is technically supposed to be somebody who is acting on behalf of King Charles, the King of Australia, that... I know it doesn't really end up working that way, but in theory, that's the idea, is that they are governing on behalf. They're the voice of somebody else. So, Pilate is the governor there, and he is basically now has to decide the case. Which way is he going to fall? Because the Jews want to put Jesus to death, but because the Romans are the occupying force, they get to decide who lives and dies. They've reserved that right for themselves. And so the Jews are trying to get Pilate to sign off on Jesus' execution. But Pilate's trying to be a fair judge. He's trying to say, what's the truth of this? It's not just going to capitulate to the Jews. The Jewish leaders, more specifically, the, uh, the elders and chief priests and some Pharisees. So Pilate has been interrogating Jesus and asking, you know, what, who are you? What's the story? They say you're a king. Are you a king? Pilate is, after all, worried about uprisings. Part of his job is to make sure that keep the peace of the Roman Empire, make sure there isn't uprisings. And so, and that there's no challenges to Roman uh, authority. So, you know, he wants to make sure, is, are you really a king? Is this just a charge that's been alleged against you? And Jesus kind of, in a roundabout way, does reveal that he's a king, but that he's also not a threat to their Roman occupation. 
And so Pilate seems like, I'm not really worried about this guy. I think he can go free. Pilate tried to set Jesus free because he found no guilt. And he had said that. He said, I found no guilt in him. And then he even offered to release him as a favor. You know, I've, I, he, at that time of year, he would traditionally release a prisoner as a, as a sign of uh, uh, good faith to the Jewish people. And they could come and request which prisoner. And so Pilate gives them an option. I can give you this political prisoner or I can give you a robber and guy who stirs up riots called Barabbas. And you know who they chose? They said, we'd rather have Barabbas and get rid of Jesus. And I made a mistake last week. I said Barabbas was a murderer. I looked it up. I, for some reason that was in my mind, but he was a robber and a, one who, who caused uprisings. But in our story, we're continuing on with this, uh, this interview with Jesus. And Pilate is kind of going back and forth between the Jewish leaders who are outside the praetorium. They didn't want to go inside for fear of getting unclean on, their, on the feast days. So they're outside and Pilate's kind of going back and forth, interviewing Jesus, telling the Jews, I don't find any guilt. But Pilate, still not thinking that Jesus is really guilty of anything terrible... He tries to satisfy the bloodlust of the Pharisees by giving Jesus some corporal punishment. He, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. So they took Jesus and had him flogged. And this is probably what I'm calling a level one flogging. So in the Roman way of doing things, there was kind of three levels of flogging, um, of, of increasing uh, severity and likelihood of dying. Um, when we compare the records of the Gospels, there seems to be that Jesus gets a flogging kind of partway through this with the, the mocking and the, um, while this Pilate's interview is still underway. But then he also gets a flogging after the judgment is pronounced. And it would seem unlikely to flog somebody within an inch of their life before you've pronounced the judgment. So what Pilate seems to be doing here is trying to kind of give a, a, a light flogging, still probably horrible, but um, the, he's, he's giving the lightweight version, the level one flogging, uh, as a way of trying to appease the Jewish leaders. Look, I've done something. I've, I've dealt with it. And so he brings out Jesus. Um, well, before we get to that, he, he, they, they mock Jesus. They put on this, this robe, this purple robe as representative of royalty. They put on this, this crown of thorns. And they are trying to figure out what kind of thorns these would be based on you know, what plants grew in the area. They suspect that it might have been um, these really long thorns and that got woven together in this kind of mocking crown. And they come up and they, they crown him, they slap him in the face, they mock him. But here's the great irony. This was his coronation, so to speak. Did you get a chance to watch the coronation of uh, King Charles? Did you see those moments where they had all the bells and whistles and they had the gold and they had the, the big robes and they had all the, all the ceremony and circumstance and they 
gave him all of the different uh, objects of representative of his rule. And they, then they went and placed the crown on his head. Or they took three, three goes to get the crown on his head. But eventually they got the crown on his head. But what a comparison that is. What a juxtaposition when we think about the coronation of, of King Charles and the coronation of Jesus Christ when he is crowned in thorns and beaten and mocked. That was a great irony. But, but this, the thing is that he was a king and he was getting crowned and it was in God's upside-down way of doing things, the way that is unexpected to us. But as I said, this was a ploy to try and set Jesus free, even though it was painful and shameful. Pilate was still trying to set him free because Pilate brought Jesus out. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis of charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. He's saying, Look at him. This is the king. This is your big troublemaker. He beat, brings out a beaten and bloodied man who's been mocked. He was probably standing there in shackles. And, he, and he's saying, look, this is the king that you're so worried about. Here he is. I find no guilt in him. The irony in it, again, is that he was the man. He was indeed the man, the second Adam. Adam, of course, means man. This was the man who had come to fulfill what the first Adam couldn't do. He was the God-man. He was the man, even as they said it in a mocking way. But this man is indeed innocent. Pilate has already announced twice that Jesus is innocent. Pilate is adamant that Jesus is innocent, but it is not enough for the Jews. They don't like it. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. We could be tempted to be contemptuous towards those leaders, to think, oh, how stupid. How could they be like that? But it is worth remembering that we would be in just the same frame of mind were it not for the Holy Spirit at work in us. That we would, we naturally, in our natural state with sin in our lives, we want to rebel against God, we want to reject Him, we want to push Him away. And we would cry out those same words. We're not somehow better than them. So let's put ourselves in those shoes and understand the absolute horror of imagining yourself crying out those words. Crucify, crucify the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. But Pilate, as we've already said, he thinks Jesus is innocent. He doesn't really want to have anything to do with this. He thinks that this is basically an internal matter. I don't need to be judging this case. And he says, you take him and crucify him. As if like, 
Like, what do you want from me? You came and you asked for my judgment. I give the judgment. <laughs> I say he's innocent three times. And yet, <laughs> and yet you don't want my judgment. Like, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> but the leaders are trying to push and push. And it's as though they, say, they see their push flagging. Their, their, their plan was, look, we'll tell Pilate that Jesus wants to be, is a king, which is true in effect. In, but they're saying, let's leverage this to try and get Jesus killed by the Romans. They see that this isn't having the effect that they thought it would. And so they say, they kind of default back to their law. Like, look, it's part of our internal kind of way of doing things. Our law says he has to die. They try and use this as an argument. Which law are they referring to? Probably this law from Leviticus, where God says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. And the sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So this was a law for God's people under the Old Testament in the land. This was God's good law. Remember that it is good. God gives it. It was, it was part of that, it was part of that Old Testament, Old Covenant law for the people of God. We would be, I don't know if blaspheming is the right word, but it'd be quite prideful and arrogant to think when we read this that somehow we have grown on from this or this is, this is or we have evolved from this. This was God's law and it was good then. And if we were under God's law uh, in, a, in a kind of a, a new kingdom where God was ruling and reigning, um, then this would be a, a, a good law again. We're obviously not in that situation. But remember that even though we don't have blasphemy laws like this against the real true Lord God today, there are still blasphemy laws. We, we pretend that there aren't. But you know that there's certain things that if you said them at work, you would, you would suffer some kind of disciplinary action. You might even get fired. We know that there are, well, there are famous stories like Israel Folau who said something on his social media which ended up losing him his job. There are still blasphemy laws. We just pretend that they don't exist. But under God's Old Testament uh, law... There was blasphemy laws for the Jewish people. And so the Jews are trying to leverage these laws to get Jesus killed. And the fact that Jesus claims to be the Son of God is, would be blasphemy if it were not true. And that's the thing about it is Jesus isn't committing blasphemy because he is the Son of God. It is true. He was innocent of this blasphemy, but they're trying to leverage this to put him to death. When Pilate heard, sorry, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where did you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. He's asking this because of this, uh, the Jews calling him the son of God, the son of God. And so here in this part of the passage, we see Jesus presented as the quiet king, the king who doesn't speak to try and leverage the situation to defend himself. He doesn't defend his cause. He is the quiet king. 
in Greek, you, you might be wondering, well, why is Pilate afraid when he hears this, that Jesus is called the Son of God, or he's claiming to be the Son of God? Why is Pilate afraid? Well, if you go back and you have a look at kind of the Greek and Roman religions, very much related, they had lots of stories about gods who would have, uh, they would have kids who were like half-human kids. Or um, there would be people who were, uh, have, um, at least in their stories, they would claim to be descended somewhere back in their lineage from a god. Probably famously, we might think of Her- uh, Hercules or, uh, or an Achilles, these kind of guys who are said to have divine parentage. And the fact that they have divine parents means that their parents are concerned for them. You imagine you had a god as a parent, um, you would be worried about getting on the wrong side of that person or mistreating their, their children. And so I think Pilate here is basically worried that he is going to be getting on the wrong side of a god. In his mind, he's thinking of a, a pantheon of gods, and he's worried about getting on the wrong side of a god by pronouncing the wrong judgment in this case. And so that's why he starts asking, where have you come from? He's wondering, you know, what's this guy's origin story? Who are you really? Pilate tries to understand Jesus' provenance, questioning him here, but Jesus won't respond. His lips are silent. And in this moment, we see that prophecy from Isaiah being fulfilled. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This, this servant of Isaiah is what he's not trying to plead his own case. He's not trying to get out of it, wriggle out of it. No, he's fulfilling prophecy. And if you read the servant songs in Isaiah, in this part of Isaiah, you'll see the life of Jesus fulfilling bits and pieces, uh, not bits and pieces, the whole the whole picture of the servant song. The whole servant song is about the servant, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is fulfilling it in every detail, including here. At times, he is quiet and not defending himself. And it's not because defending himself is bad or because there's a lack of truth. <laughs> like Jesus, um, it's not like there's things that Jesus couldn't be saying to set the record straight. But He's fulfilling the prophecy. He's walking the path to the cross. He knows the path that's laid out for him. He knows what he has to do. And as he told us before, he only says what the Father tells him to say. And so even in these moments, he's only saying what the Father wants him to say. But he probably wouldn't have changed much for those people who are opposed to God and set themselves against God. Even if Jesus was to set it all out, to make it all plain, it probably wouldn't have changed anything because they were opposed to him. But the silence aggravates Pilate. You know, he thinks he's the, got the upper hand in this situation. He thinks, I'm the one who's controlling the outcome. Why aren't you showing me the honour and respect of answering my questions? Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realise I have the power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. The pilot is trying to use power and authority to force Jesus to bend to his will. He's presiding over the case. 
He has to make a call on whether or not Jesus lives or dies. And so Pilate thinks that, you know, why aren't you, don't you realize the situation? Don't you realize what's on the line? But the irony to this is that the one there standing before him, the sorry looking figure, the beaten and bruised Jesus, is actually the one with the upper hand. He's actually the one with the greater authority in that room. Pilate should be submitting himself to Jesus, not the other way around. And and Jesus points out the fact that Pilate is in the position that he is in because God put him there. He's using the euphemism of um, having authority from above, so from God. It's an indirect way of talking about the fact that you're here by God's will. The will of heaven, so to speak. He was there doing his job on that day because God had him there. But this doesn't make Pilate any less culpable. The fact that God put him in that position and put him there on that day doesn't change the fact that he's still responsible for the way that he acts in those moments, the choice that he makes. God sovereignly ordains all things that come to pass, including who's in positions of power, who are the local officials, who your mum and dad are, where you were born. But no matter what position we find ourselves in, we're called to live in accordance with God's expressed will. What has he called us to do? What is the way to life? What is the way of obedience and faithfulness and trust? So although God puts us in different positions and and ultimately God ordains the, the ends of what happens, we're nevertheless held accountable for how we act in every given circumstance. We don't just go, uh, and sin against God because we say, oh, well, God obviously has ordained it to happen. Judas wasn't justified in doing what he did in betraying Jesus because God had ordained the end. He was still held responsible for his actions. We have real volition that makes us really responsible for our actions. And so even though God put Pilate there, Pilate was responsible for what decision he made. But although he was culpable, he wasn't the worst sinner in this sorry chain of events. Others were guilty of doing greater sin than him. Jesus says that the ones who handed handed him over were guilty of a greater sin. And spoiler alert, Pilate will hand Jesus over for crucifixion, And so he does sin by sending an innocent man to die and the Son of God at that. Yet Jesus acknowledges that Pilate is a link in the chain and not the instigator of the events. He's not the one causing the whole trouble. And I was trying to think of an an example of when this might happen. I thought of um, you folk in the the Defence Force with your ranks and um, orders being, being given. You could imagine one day that there was an officer who who gives orders to those under them, receiving orders from up the chain, bad orders, morally reprehensible orders coming from from up the chain, and then the officer being in a position of having to pass those orders on to, to give the command to do something terrible. Now, that that officer in the middle will still be responsible for what they do, the message that they pass on, the choice that they make, but their sin will will not be as great as the ones who gave the orders in the first place. Does that make sense? Being caught in the chain isn't as bad as being the one who's bringing it all 
starting it off. And so there are greater and lesser sins, but this doesn't mean that we should go around and try and figure out which sins are worse than other sins and which are the lesser sins and does that mean that we should do the lesser sins and not stay away from the other sins? No, all sin is, is, is reprehensible to God. All sin is an affront to God. But yes, there is degrees of evil. There is degrees of wickedness. And in this case, Pilate is, is kind of pressured into a corner where he is, he's choose, has to choose between kind of two bad outcomes. He's caught between a rock and a, place, a hard place. But Pilate really doesn't want to kill this quiet king. And so we come to that fourth and last way that Jesus is presented here. He's presented as the rejected king. This is how he is treated. He's treated as the rejected king. Pilate's still trying to free Jesus. Firstly, because Jesus was innocent. But secondly, because he was afraid Jesus might be divine. He didn't want to incur the wrath of heaven by killing a son of a god. But the Jewish leaders uh, keep pushing. They keep pushing. They keep trying to force Pilate's hand. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Remember I said that Pilate was a delegate from Rome. He's out there to keep the peace. He's out there to represent the Roman Empire, the Caesar specifically. And if you know anything about the mechanisms of ancient Roman politics, you know that there was plenty of backstabbing and, and literally plenty of, <laughs> plenty of backstabbing. Um, whenever there was a whiff of sedition in the ranks or, uh, or, or, or some kind of betrayal, then they would come down hard because you didn't want to be the next one to be taken out. And so for people who were kind of on the extremities of the empire, far away from the Caesar himself, they had to make sure that bad reports weren't getting sent back to Rome about their behaviour, lest the Caesar depose you, kick you out of your job, or worse, have you executed. So the Jews are trying to leverage this these, these Jewish leaders, again, trying to manipulate the situation to get what they want, to make this evil happen. They're like basically saying, look, we'll, they're implying we'll send a bad report about you to Rome. Now, the Jews were well known for being unhappy about being under the Roman thumb. They didn't like the Romans. They didn't want them to be there. They wanted nothing to do with the Romans. And so, imagine how bad it would look if the guys who don't like the Romans wrote a letter to Caesar saying, your local governor is not representing you well. He's not, he's not doing your job well. It's, it's, it would be a really bad look. And it would be really hard for Pilate to try and make a good case for why he would let somebody, a self-declared king, off the hook in that situation. Even when the Jews who didn't like the Romans were calling for him to be put to death under their law. So Pilate was caught between a rock and a hard place. Either execute this this innocent man or save my own skin. And he makes the choice that we expect. He wants to save his own bacon. 
So he comes out to that official seat, the judgment seat, to pronounce the judgment in a public place. We don't actually get the judgment recorded here, but it's implied through the fact that he hands him over to be executed. Pilate will pronounce this sentence on behalf of Rome from the seat of judgment. He's not happy about being forced into this situation, and so he speaks to the Jewish leaders in a very mocking way. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, crucify him. Oh, sorry, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. You see here Pilate mocking the Jews. Here is your king, a beaten, bloody figure with thorns on his head, not handsome or regal, in chains. He responds, they respond, you know, crucify him, crucify him, get rid of him, take him away. When Pilate responds with the more taunts, shall I crucify your king? But here's the irony again. He is their king. He's speaking more truth than he knows. He's trying to mock them, but he's speaking the truth. He is their king. He is the king of the Jews. He is their king, born of the line of David, anointed by God. And in that terrible, awful moment, they reject Jesus outright. So outright that they say, look, we will have Caesar instead of the son of God of the line of David sent here to save us. We'll have Caesar. Caesars pretended to be sons of God. They claimed divine parentage to be in this kind of quasi-divine quasi status as being ones who pronounce laws from heaven. Here, here is one who is a, a worshipper of, of pagan gods. Here is one who is oppressing them and who has taken over their land and they'd rather say, we'll have him the fake son of God, instead of the real true son of God who is standing right there before them. They had hoped and longed for a Messiah and then they killed him. They substitute a poor copy. It's not that far from where we are. How often do we reject Christ and his authority over us? How often do we say, no, thank you, I'll do it my own way. This is what I want in this moment, and so I will take it regardless. We substitute ourselves as king over our life when we should be kneeling before the king, Jesus. We should be submitting to him, not trying to make him submit to us. Every time we sin against God, we reject him as king. He remains king, but we are rebelling against his rule. We are acting seditiously. And, and that's why sin is so important in the life of the church as a body of believers. That's why we need to deal with sin amongst us. That's why we need to deal with our sins and we publicly confess our sins. 
but we also try, we want to practice it as a way of life, of turning away from sin, confessing our sin, repenting, receiving that forgiveness and putting our faith and trust in Jesus. We need to keep dealing with it and we need to deal with it when we sin against one another. We need to get rid of it because it is, it is acts of sedition against our Lord. To leave it, to act as if it doesn't matter, is to say, is to reject Jesus as king. So where have we been? Let's tie things up. We've seen a king. We've seen a king who was demeaned and tortured for us. We've seen a king who suffered injustice for us. We've seen a king who stuck to the father's plan and withheld his wrath to receive the wrath of God for you. We've seen a king who was rejected for us. And he did it all so that we might have eternal life. This is a sad and sorry chapter in the story. But it is, again, it is a story that is leading to life. It is a story that brings life for us. This is our saviour. This is the lengths that he went to, to win us salvation. And so what do we do in response? We, we thank him. We receive his sacrifice great, gratefully. We rejoice in what he has done. And we stop acting seditiously. We stop acting and, and rejecting him in the way that we live. We say, thank you for saving us, even though we rejected you. And then we live as those who receive him on a day-by-day basis. Let's pray that we would do that now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, our rejected King. Lord, we know that left to our own devices, we will reject him ourselves. But we thank you, Lord, that you have reconciled us to you through that King. So that now we might receive him and live under him. And not just for a few moments, not just for a few years, but Lord, for eternity. We thank you, Lord, that he is our good king. We thank you, Lord, for him in the, in, in, in the way that you have revealed him to us in this passage, a, a king who was despised. Yet we thank you, Lord, that he is a king who endured that for the sake of his people. We pray, Lord, that we might receive him and that we might receive him in every moment and that our whole life might be in conformity to your will, that it might all be an act of love and devotion towards you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.